the inner world. In my vision, I was in a jungle. I was in this sort of beautiful South American jungle. And there was this fantastic, beautiful woman, um, black woman with uh, feathers in her hair, the most gorgeous and fabulous goddess. And she came over to me and then she started to defecate on me. She started to basically shit out all of the bad things, all of the times I've ever been mean, all of the times I've ever not stood up for people, including myself, all of the, all of the shame that I had in my life at that stage. You know? And just being a human, that's kind of stuff that we carry with us. I do, I, I imagine other people do. But had someone pulled me out of that experience at the moment when uh, the shit got real, as it were, I might have found myself at the other end of the experience going, oh, actually, I've come out of this feeling really bad and, and, and unresolved and there's no catharsis and so on. Tonight, we explore psychedelics. Getting higher is a manual for exploring the use of psychedelic substances in a context of spirituality, self-transformation, and magic. This is the Psychonauts Essential Guide. Julian Vane is the author, and he is my guest tonight, and he's coming right up after this on My Alien Life. My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. My Alien Life Podcast. Julian Vane is an occultist and the author of numerous books, essays, journals, and articles in both the academic and esoteric press. He is an author with over three decades of experience in engaging with and writing about esoteric culture, from Druidry to American Shamanism, Freemasonry, and Wicca. He is the author of Getting Higher, a manual for exploring the use of psychedelic substances in the context of spirituality, self-transformation, and magic. Tonight, we're going to talk about psychedelic substances for those of us who know little or nothing about the experience. Julian Vane, thank you so much for joining me and welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me onto the show, Cam. I know many of my listeners look into the occult and hear the word esoteric and think of that as kind of an exclusionary word, and they may feel they aren't even qualified to begin to study consciousness beyond maybe a nine to five job and exhaustion. What do you tell people like that now? Oh, that's a really interesting, uh, quite, quite, a, quite a big sort of statement. I would say that altered states of awareness, however they are arrived at, whether those come to us through uh, the use of psychedelic substances, drugs of one form or another, or whether they are induced by 
spontaneous experiences, um, visionary encounters, let's call them, or whether or not they are things that emerge uh, kind of endogenously within ourselves where we do things like practices such as meditation or uh, trance drumming or music or any of these kinds of practices. So those states of awareness are part of our inherent human birthright. And as I think is becoming increasingly clear, those states of awareness are really important for our health and our well-being, both as individuals, as societies, and uh, also perhaps as a whole species. So uh, those of us who find ourselves um, up against the proverbial grindstone of the day-to-day experience, Man, I understand that, you know, that's a, that's a story for a lot of people, uh, those of us in the industrial and post-industrial world and those people who are in perhaps even more challenging kind of circumstances in, 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 in other contexts or um, other kind of socioeconomic groups. But I think that um, an engagement with those altered states of awareness, let's broadly call them that, are really, really important, really important for, uh, as I said, our well-being as individuals and also kind of collectively. So I think having an understanding of those things, what they mean culturally and what they mean for us as individuals is a really important thing. It's so easy to get stuck in a rut and we become, you know, dregs of society. So what do you think is the easiest way to get out of that? And what's the the next easiest step of consciousness in order to kind of retool and reset every day? Okay, so let's 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 take a step back. Uh, you, you use the expression there, being in a, being in a rut. You know, we're all familiar with this idea, and uh, I'd like to just talk a little bit about uh, an experience that I had earlier on uh, this year, where I was uh, in uh, Britain, in London, taking part in a medical trial uh, using psilocybin. So psilocybin is um, the primary active constituent of what people probably know is things like magic mushrooms, psychedelic mushrooms. And the trial that I was a participant in was a trial to address treatment-resistant depression because psychedelic substances can be used to interrupt uh, depression, uh, anxiety, uh, things like post-traumatic stress disorder. And many of these conditions are about being in a rut. Yeah, so if you take the example of somebody who has uh, post-traumatic illness, what typically happens to those people, and what happens to many of us just with the experience of being human, is that we find ourselves going round and round and round in circles. We get into a rut. We have a series of intrusive thoughts that continually arise within us. So someone with post-traumatic stress disorder, whether they have that as a result of being a military veteran, from being in one of the uh, um, uh, healthcare services, you know, being a, a firefighter or or someone who's gone through some you know, terrible and, and, and unpleasant, abusive or other situation, what happens to them is that their mind gets stuck in a rut. They get stuck in this one way of thinking, and they often think about themselves primarily as a person with depression or a person with this illness. Now, what I experienced as part of this piece of research in uh, January, which was licensed medical research happening in a major hospital in uh, the center of London, was what a lot of people have experienced with the psych- with uh, psychedelics and the reason they're being increasingly looked at medically. And it's simply that it gets you out of the rut. So what happens with a psychedelic is that we uh, find ourselves in a new state of awareness where instead of being, uh, to use the, the, the 
following with the same kind of analogy, rather than being trapped in this rut, being unable to see uh, what's beyond it, we find ourselves in a radically different state of consciousness where we can see what's going on as though from a new vantage point. If we were talking in um, more mythological or shamanic terms, we could talk about it being uh, from a, a sort of metaphorical point of view, the way that the shaman flies above the landscape. So we look down on our problems. We're no longer absorbed by them. doesn't mean we're disconnected from them. doesn't mean that they kind of don't exist. You know, the past is still the past and bad stuff is still bad stuff. But it gives us a new perspective. And when we're down in the rug, we don't have perspective. That's basically the kind of the definition of it, really, in some ways, where we're in this channel, we're in this chasm, we're in this abyss where we can't see beyond that. And my experience, certainly with the uh, psilocybin uh, research, uh, which is the reason that these that, that folks are kind of doing this in um, the United States and in, 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 um, uh, across Europe, is that we know that what the psychedelic experience allows you to do is to kind of step outside of this rut. Now, any visionary experience will do that. Any radical change in awareness will do that. Um, however it's induced, whether it's chemical or whether it arises in some other way. But having that opportunity to step outside of uh, the kind of your own personal psychological status quo means that you can address things that uh, were problematic in a really powerful way. So the, I was a research participant. I, was, I, I don't suffer from uh, clinical depression, so I was a, you know, quote, normal research participant to look at how this medication might be deployed. But it's already being used uh, in some places, and it will be being increasingly used because uh, psychedelic, the psychedelic state is a very, very effective way to break out of that rut. Good example. Um, you know, I think that uh, so many of us, and including myself, we spend so much time also worrying about the past and present. Um, I see this as a problem. Is there a way to um, to alter our state where we actually become present um, to current events and what's happening around us at the at the moment? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a really good point, and it, and and it kind of um, there's there's a lot of relationship between that and. Um, I mean, when I talk about the psychedelic state, I'm talking uh, in some respects because of my own interest. I'm interested in, in various ways of inducing that, some of which are chemicals, some of which are through other practices. So meditation, for example, induces an altered state of awareness where it's about being present in the moment. And what happens in, in our brains is that, um, and this is kind of quite sort of contemporary neurological language, but it's all kind of checkable through fairly you know, very mainstream sources. So we have a system in our brain, um, a functional relationship of bits in our brain, which is called the default mode network. Okay, so the default mode network is the state of the brain that's active as the default when you are not doing anything. So it's sometimes called the task null network. So it's the thing that happens when you're kind of sitting around and you're musing about the future and you're ruminating on the past. You're not... Um, you maybe you're thinking about your relationships with other people, but you're not talking to them. You're not doing anything. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, you know, there you are um, uh, sat on the subway train or you're, you know, you're kind of just uh, gazing out the window um, uh, and, and, and the mind is folding back on itself. And, and um, we're thinking usually about our, our own uh, kind of ego identity relationship with other people and the past and the future, you know, things that maybe, maybe we regret or that we would like to have changed, the things that we're planning for uh, what happens next. 
So this is the default mode network state. And uh, this is perfectly normal. This is, you know, this is what human beings do. This is one of the kind of the, the mental states that we have. We also have a, uh, a state which is the, the uh, has, it goes by various names, but let's, for the purposes of the exercise, call it um, uh, the uh, present in the now network. Yeah, let's call it that for, for the purposes of the exercise. And what happens in that state is that that's a state of mind where we are deeply involved in tasks. So, for example, we're in a flow state. Let's imagine you're a musician and you're playing and it's all just kind of going beautifully and it's all happening. That's being involved in a task where the flow state un uh, arises. And the default mode network at that point, your sense of ego identity turns down. Okay, so it's like turning down the, the light on a dimmer switch. So uh, various things happen. Uh, you get time dilation. So you get things like people go, oh, wow, I had no idea that an hour, three hours have passed, and I, it only felt like 10 minutes. Yeah, this is a common experience because we're in, we're, we're in the now. We're in this kind of present moment. We're not um, uh, sectioning the kind of the past and the present and the, uh, and the future and the relationship between those things. So our sense of time dilates. It changes. What also happens is that um, new uh, connections are often made within within the mind. So, kind of ideas will pop up, or and you and people see this. This is, an, this is a common human experience. You know, while you're busy engaged in the task, but a task that is um, uh, uh, perhaps something like I don't know, uh, cleaning cleaning your house, something like this. It gives you the opportunity for these other novel connections to arise, which don't arise so easily in the default mode network state. So, if you look at um, a piece of research that was done in, I think it was 2014, which was done at Imperial College in London, um, uh, funded partly by the, the Beckley Foundation. Again, another piece of research with uh, looking at psilocybin. You can, and if, again, if people want to go and check this online, it's very easily found. 2014 psilocybin brain imaging study. Try Googling that. And what you'll see is you'll see a, a model of a brain with a default mode network. And it's, it's like looking at a, a landscape with certain pathways on it. In some respects, these might be thought of as ruts. Yeah? So these are the normal pathways that we have when we're not really doing anything. We're just thinking about ourselves and our relationship to the past and future. When you induce an altered state of awareness, a kind of present in the now state of awareness, whether you do that through dance, drumming, spontaneous visionary encounter, psychedelic drugs, it kind of doesn't really matter. Uh, or even being involved in a flow state, so you're a musician, or you're um, you're involved in perhaps some kind of sporting activity, and you're deeply in the flow. A couple of things happen. Firstly, you lose your sense of time. Uh, secondly, what happens is that you get this process that I alluded to earlier, where novel connections start to be made in the brain. Yeah, uh, and the third process that's really important is that the sense of ego identity. And I'm not saying this is ego identity is a bad thing. It's just like it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. But the sense of ego identity gets turned down. Now, this is the state that we are aiming for very often with any way of changing awareness. Yeah, this is the thing that we're really interested in because the default mode network state, the state that most of us are in most of the time, particularly kind of you know, Euro-American relatively atomized cultures where we spend compared to many civilizations of an amazing amount of time just on our own, many of us, um, that this state needs to be balanced up with an engagement with these other states of awareness. 
So those are the states of awareness happen spontaneously through things like dreaming. Um, they, they can happen at you know, various points in our lives. But being able to kind of induce those things is really important because it brings us into the moment and into the now. And it kind of decouples us, at least temporarily, from worrying about the past and the future. You know, um, one of the things that psychedelic drugs do is they, they uh, have a, um, one of their effects is to make very, people very, very present in what's actually unfolding for them in that moment. Um, and that, depending on what their circumstances are, what their environment is, what their um, emotional state is like, you know, that could be very positive or more challenging or, or whatever. But the point is it puts you into this moment here and now. And so that's kind of, that's a broad sort of way of thinking about this, this uh, the, the relationship between you know, the normal everyday consciousness that we have um, and these altered states of awareness. Um, and I would argue that being able to kind of flow between these things is actually what's really helpful and healthy for people. That's why psychedelic drugs, if you look at the work being done with um, uh, veterans in the United States using MDMA to address post-traumatic stress disorder, that's exactly the model that's being used. You know, the model is that you use this psychedelic substance it brings you into this relationship with the now. It allows you to step outside of the default mode network story that you tell yourself, you know, I'm a person with trauma. And it doesn't stop there being trauma, but it allows you to see it in a very different context, in a very different light. And then when you return to normal awareness, let's call it, then that healing opportunity, that way of seeing things in this very, from this very, very different point of view, uh, allows the altered state to become an altered trait, an altered behavior. Um, and that's what makes a real difference. Does that make sense? It does. That's it's very, it's interesting. And I think it's amazing that, that, uh, that being present actually has to be an altered state, you know, because you'd think that that's what our default would be, but it really isn't, is it? No, no. And, and it kind of makes sense really, because we're, because we're, we're these, um, you know, uh, hominid simian creatures we spend a lot of time, understandably and, and arguably rightly, um, but thinking about where are we in the social hierarchy and where are we within the storyline. Yeah, so we spend a lot of time going, oh, I wonder what I did you know, last week and I wonder what I'm going to do next week. And I wonder what my, you know, how so-and-so thinks about me or how this person considers me or what do I think about this person. So we spend a lot of time asking ourselves, what is it, what it, is, what is it that we think? Now, it's interesting because one might make an argument, and I've heard this suggested, that in other cultural settings, let's imagine, you know, let's cut back, I don't know, 30,000 30, years, we're all hunter-gatherers. But in a hunter-gatherer community where you're within a, a social network of about 200 individuals, so that's the average size of a tribal group, um, and probably spending some of your time within an even smaller, you know, familial group or, 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 or a couple of different families, and you're spending your time being very, very hyper aware of your environment. Yeah. So where the food sources are, what the cues for the animals are, where, where water courses are and so on. Now it may well be that in those situations, the default network is the network of being present in the now. Yeah. That would kind of make sense. And perhaps, perhaps this is only a conjecture, but perhaps the experience of domestication, the advent of farming, complex civilization, atomization and changes in familial relationships, the bigger expansion of social groups beyond that 200, which is about a manageable 
collection. You can you can easily remember 200 people's names beyond that starts to be a problem. So maybe our default mode network state now is the default, like that is to say the common state for the mind. But that's because when we do the research, we say, well, what what how do we how do we measure what the baseline of the mind is? We put people in an fMRI scanner on their own and we get them to not say anything. And arguably, that's not what a human is meant to do. A human is meant to be in community with others. And in community with others, we're much more in the now. So as I'm having this conversation with you, and we're talking, we're chatting, you know, I, I haven't got this in scripted. And what will probably happen is that, you know, we're going through time and I look back and I go, oh, wow, it's 20 minutes already. Fantastic. I mean, I didn't, you know, it was really quick because we're involved in this kind of interpersonal flow. So maybe the default state, the default mode network state is only default mode network from the point of view of like Western kind of sort of atomized civilization. Maybe if you'd gone to someone who was a hunter gatherer, they would have looked at this state of awareness where you're sitting on your own thinking about stuff and said, well, we do that in vision quest, but basically we don't, you know, we're always hanging out with each other and trying to figure out what the animals and the plants and the water and the weather is, is, is doing. Yeah. So the state of being in the moment, we can, we feel that that's like an exception. Yeah, that's an unusual state. That's the thing, the thing we have to work for. Perhaps in other cultural settings, that's different. I don't know. I think as a, a hunter, yeah, as a hunter gatherer culture, if you looked back maybe ten thousand years, I don't think that a um, a um, an altered state would have been that unusual because you would have a hunter gatherer who uh, maybe a, a male who is who is um, spanning the or scanning the landscape. Uh, for hours and hours on end and um, breathing differently than we, than we do now and, and experiencing things that we've never experienced. I think that that altered state would have, would have come with that natural um, vision and not actually a vision quest. Correct. Yeah. 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 Quite possibly. I mean, I was doing some meditation uh, yesterday morning, I think it was. And um, uh, afterwards I was kind of reflecting on this and I was reflecting on, okay, so here I am, I'm meditating. So the basic, you know, Basic meditation is there's a couple of different flavors, but the, the flavor that I was trying was, uh, which is a common practice for me, which is to have an anchor. So the, the sensation of breath or the movement of um, the uh, air over the upper lip, and you basically bring attention to that. Attention wanders because attention wanders. That's the way it goes. You notice that attention has wandered, and you bring it back to the to the anchor to the breath. And I was, I was kind of thinking about this afterwards and thinking it's really interesting that what I do is I find my thoughts kind of going off in different directions and then I bring them back to the anchor. And of course, that's what I need to do. That's, that's how meditation works. You know, that's basically meditation 101. There's plenty more to say, but the core of it is that. But I was considering what would be my experience if I was, a uh, say, a hunter uh, 10,000 years ago. Let's, let's give it that kind of time frame. And I'm uh, in a landscape and I'm waiting to see whether or not the deer are coming through. So I might find that my mind is wandering, of course, but I'm going to be, I'm going to have to be like really primed, really attentive. So I don't want to kind of go into myself. I don't want to be wrapped up in my own narrative thinking about like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said such and such a thing around the campfire last night, or maybe when the rains come, then I'll do this with my partner or, or whatever. I want to be very kind of present in that now moment. So yeah, maybe it's the case that, you know, a hunter-gatherer hunter, uh, a hunter community, without wanting to do the whole noble savage thing, a hunter-gatherer community would probably find that what we consider 
unusual altered states, they will have have uh, certainly wouldn't wouldn't use that kind of language. They wouldn't go, well, this is the weird outlier, strange thing. They'd probably say, well, this is just like normal thinking. You know, the weird outlier state is the state where you're kind of on your own, just considering your own narrative. You know, that that would be the the, the, the curious thing, I suspect. Let's consider a psychedelic uh, course 101. What are the substances or entheogens that are, are naturally occurring in the United States that provide an altered state of consciousness for, for a potential experiencer? Okay, so, so the United States is, is an interesting case because obviously we have recent changes, as I understand it, in legislation in places like um, Oakland and Denver and, and various other jurisdictions where... Uh, the term that you use, entheogens, so plants that, um, that, that or substances that allow us to uh, generate or contact or be, be perceive the, the, the sacred within us, yeah, as opposed to psychedelic, another perfectly legitimate term, which is uh, substances that allow us to manifest, that is to say, to become aware of the, the mechanisms of our own minds, both perfectly reasonable words. In the United States, Changes in legislation means that, um, depending on exactly where you are, there are a number of substances which are available. I mean, growing natives in uh, in the Americas, of course, are um, the um, phenethylamine uh, substances, so things like peyote, uh, San Pedro, uh, cactus, uh, which uh, contain uh, as their primary alkaloid mescaline, uh, so a modified psychedelic amphetamine, so uh, something that is a, a psychedelic, that is to say it, it gives um, a whole variety of different effects which are often in a Western context described as kind of visionary in some sense uh, and also quite kind of stimulating. Again, growing, growing native in the landscape in the Americas, we're talking about things like psilocybin mushrooms. Uh, psilocybin mushrooms are one of the, the other great family of psychedelics. So you have the um, the phenethylamine family, the mescaline family, and the second family are, are the tryptamine family. And uh, psych- uh, psilocybin, which is derived from uh, magic mushrooms, from psychedelic mushrooms, from psilocybin mushrooms, uh, that's, a, that's a tryptamine. So, uh, and then there's like a whole bunch of other plants out there. I mean, you know, in the, the Americas in particular, if we take North and South America together, very, very great diversity of naturally occurring psychedelics. And then, of course, pretty much since, um, let's call it the early 20th century, and particularly since the mid-20th century, uh, we've got the emergence of a number of uh, synthetically derived psychedelics, still with organic roots, because that's the way it goes. So things like MDMA, um, things like uh, substances such as uh, ketamine, and of course, most notably, I suppose, within the American story, um, LSD which when it came into particularly culture in North America made huge impact on the culture to the extent where it, it led to uh, Nixon's war on drugs. So there's a whole bunch of stuff out there, both growing in the locality. And take, take aside cannabis. I mean, cannabis, in my view, is a psychedelic. And people who think that it's not psychedelic, I think probably just haven't had enough of it or haven't taken it, in, taken it orally, um, which you know is a powerful experience potentially. So there are plants out there um, with these substances in, and there are laboratory-made ones. One, of course, has to be very thoughtful about um, the, the, the legal uh, framework in which those things are happening. 
I would imagine that if you're in Oakland, it's a very different story to being in, I don't know, Alabama or somewhere. I don't know the details of the North American story. Can you explain some of these substances and, and their effect on the body and the brain and, and what we could experience by using them? Let's imagine that you decide uh, you know, where it's arguably safe and legal to do so, that you want to take something like uh, psilocybin. So psilocybin has been being used by um, humans and probably hominids before we were even anatomically modern humans. It's incredibly safe. That's the first thing to say. When you talk about drugs, people always understandably worry about uh, overdose and addiction. And uh, psilocybin is incredibly safe. So let's go with psilocybin. You know, you couldn't physically eat enough mushrooms to kill you. It just wouldn't happen. You know, the lethal dose would be something like 10 pounds of mushrooms dropped on you from a 13th story window. You know, ain't no way you're going to die with this stuff. It might make you feel like something very powerful and profound is happening, um, but it's not going to kill you. So let's take psilocybin. So psilocybin is uh, a tryptamine, as I mentioned earlier. And that means that when you put it into a human, uh, and there's a whole cascade of different things that happen. So although uh, sometimes the psilocybin experience might be stimulating, so we might feel like getting up and moving or dancing, and other times it might be sedating, so we might feel like lying down and being all dreamy, the most important thing about it is that it creates new connections within uh, the mind. And so those new connections, to take a really simple example, can be Connections that previously didn't exist between the uh, optic centers in the brain and, say, the centers associated with hearing. So, for example, if you're listening to music and you close your eyes, you might see all sorts of beautiful patterns, typically the kind of fractal patterns that you might see on a, say, computer visualizer screen. Um, those kind of fractal patterns will emerge and they will somehow feel that they're connected with the music. And as the music changes, the patterns may change as well. So we can have these visionary experiences. And often there will be a sense that these patterns have a meaning associated with them, that they're trying to kind of tell you something or convey something. Sometimes the uh, closed eye imagery might resolve itself into people or scenes, somewhat like a dream, really. Um, and the tryptamine experience in the, uh, of, um, say, psilocybin, you'd be looking at something which, on an empty stomach, uh, if you take an appropriate dose of mushrooms, you'll feel some sort of effect within about 20 minutes, about 20 minutes after ingestion. And then they, it, the experience will gradually kind of increase. There is a sense of coming up or coming into the trip or getting high. So there's a sense of almost like an acceleration. Uh, and then you're into the experience and then the experience might last for perhaps three or four hours, something like this, and then gradually fades out. So a simple way of explaining it would be um, if you were lying there in a, a, a suitable environment with your eyes closed and you're looking into the darkness, it might be as though after the first 20 minutes, you start to have a sense that you're not looking into just black. You're looking into kind of a space, uh, like, a, like looking at the night sky. And then you might find that after that, um, a little more time elapses, that that night sky begins to resolve itself into uh, beautiful uh, dreamlike uh, images or scenes. And very often, although we talk about the visionary side of these kinds of things, what's, what's kind of more important in a way is that there are these feelings that arise. So there's a sense of, there can be senses of um, connection is the primary one. So as the brain is connecting itself to bits it doesn't normally talk to, 
there is also often a sense of connection between the self and, for example, if you're in a natural environment, if you're outside or in a park or um, um, uh, in some other you know, beautiful setting, you're sat around the fire or something, there'll be a sense that the boundary between self and other is destabilized, just like the boundary between sight and hearing is destabilized in the brain. So what happens is there's a sense that you're connected with everything else. Perhaps you're connected with those other people. Maybe you're connected with the other life forms that are there, the trees, the plants, the insects, the animals. What you have to be thoughtful of with all these things is that these substances are tremendously, uh, the, you know, the, the, the most important thing about them is they're, they're very, very um, highly influenced by what uh, is, is usually described as set and setting. So the set is the mindset with which you go into the experience. So if you go into the experience feeling, I mean, you might feel excited, you might feel trepidation, you might feel a number of things. But if you've just gone through some kind of terribly traumatic event and it's very fresh in your mind, chances are that that will be a key part of the experience. And that, that may be okay if you're, if you're well organized for it, but probably not. So you need to be in a good space, a good mindset from which to make this adventure. Just like if you were to go on holiday. You know, you can go on holiday having had a terrible argument with your partner and um, having found that, you know, the, uh, the plumbing has gone wrong in the house and so on. But probably you'll carry that with you into your holiday and it will ruin your holiday or at least make it not as good. If, however, you leave the house thinking, hey, it's all good. I'm really set up for this. Yes, I'm a bit nervous. I'm a bit excited, but it's going to be fine. That attitude carried into the experience is more likely to allow it to unfold positively. The other side of the equation is the setting. So you have the set, the mindset, and then the setting, the environment in which the experience unfolds. So that needs to be supportive, safe, consensual, with maybe if you're unfamiliar with this and you've never explored this territory before, you might want to have a guide or a sitter or a friend or however you want, whatever language you want to put around it, someone to help you out who maybe knows this territory a bit. If you're going into a ceremonial setting, you want to be comfortable with, you know, all the people involved in that and the kind of the the um, the, the the kind of style that the ceremony is going to be in. Um, you want to be in a good a good environment, and uh, depending again on things like the the dosage you're taking, if you're taking a higher dose, you can be quite happily just like lying down in a safe and secure room. If perhaps you're taking a lower dose or towards the end of an experience, you might want to go out and be into, in nature because that sense of connection, which many of these substances provoke for people, is, is of course, tremendously strong when your setting is actually out in a natural environment. So uh, those are the kind of variables that you have to be thinking about. You have to be thinking about, like, what am I bringing into this experience? Yeah, what's, my, what's my set? What's my mindset? You know, uh, and that can include things like intention. Am I doing this for a particular reason? Am I doing this for some sort of healing process? Am I doing it in order to get some creative insight? Am I doing it just to explore? Nothing necessarily wrong in that. Um, but what am I? What am I bringing into this experience? And then where is it going to unfold? You know, um, am I making sure that I've got a, a safe, nourishing, uh, good environment to to to, um, to work within? If you were taking, say, psilocybin, you might find that you might want access, for example, to art materials, so you could draw or paint. You might want different types of music to explore. You might want um, to have the opportunity to, uh, yeah, just kind of 
change any number of the variables in your environment, you know, the light level, all these things. Typically, psilocybin, um, often low light levels are, 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 are what most people tend to favor um, because that allows the visionary stuff to kind of unfold more easily. And, of course, you have to consider um, all the kind of health and safety dosage information. Um, and uh, luckily, we're in an age where there's a vast amount of material available online. Um, much of it is very, very good. And by cross-checking a few different sources, uh, even if you're kind of unfamiliar with this territory, you can you can probably make a pretty good kind of estimation of uh, how, how you should proceed. Ain't nothing as good as actually getting somebody who knows the territory, who you trust and you feel comfortable with to assist um, with whatever your, your um, experience is. And of course, we're getting to the point now increasingly where there are many settings where uh, we've got licensed and legal environments for people to take um, psychedelics. So here in Britain, where I am, plenty of people go out to licensed or, or at least kind of, I suppose we, we call it, if not necessarily licensed, then at least uh, legally acceptable uh, psilocybin retreats and uh, work with people over in, say, the Netherlands, where um, some forms of uh, psychedelic mushroom are, uh, are, are permitted. So um, it's about finding the right kind of storyline uh, for, for you, but being really mindful about this idea of set, setting and substance. Um, what are you bringing to the experience, where is it going to happen, and what is it you're going to take? So in the example of psilocybin that I've just given, it's a very, very predictable, it's a very, very safe kind of trajectory in terms of the onset of the substance, the basic way it works and so on, but it can tremendously vary depending on how much psilocybin you're taking and how you feel and where you're taking it. And so you, ha you it's not just about the drug, and that's a really important thing about psychedelics is that when we talk about psychedelics, we're talking about stuff, substances, you know, things made in plants or alchemist laboratories. But really, we need to be talking about all of those variables. It's the context in which those things happen that matters. Other than cannabis, are there substances available in the U.S., Canada, and, U and the U.K. that are uh, actually legal that you can obtain easily? Well, you see, the, the, the legal thing is always kind of interesting. And although it's, yes, uh, it, it seems like a minor point, it's important perhaps to point out that uh, none of the substances are ever illegal, uh, only people's use in relation to them. So uh, you can be a licensed LSD researcher um, in, I don't know, Texas, and have a license to use LSD. LSD is not inherently illegal. It's whether or not you're licensed to use it. You're permitted by uh, the state to use those things. And so in North America, you'd have to really look at the kind of the, um, the, the laws in those particular areas. I know obviously that laws with regard to cannabis have changed quite dramatically and laws are changing as regards things like psilocybin, peyote and so on. There are exclusions and variations. So for example, um, in North America, uh, since the end of the 19th century, the Native American church have been permitted to use uh, peyote as part of their ceremony, and uh, peyote contains, amongst other things, uh, mescaline, which is a, a Class A in the UK, Schedule One in the United States, prohibited uh, substance. Or more, more rightly, most people are not allowed to use it unless you are, you know, a bona fide member of the Native American Church. 
so it's it, it would be uh, I can't really kind of make make broad uh, brushstroke suggestions about um, situations which are tremendously variable and seem to be changing quite quickly. You know, the war on drugs that we had from uh, Richard Nixon's time onwards uh, is is if not over, then at least it's in retreat because we realise that as far as psychedelics are concerned, there are tremendous benefits. Um, to be had from these substances. And as far as things like uh, opiates, heroin, uh, fentanyl, and stimulants, you know, cocaine, uh, and amphetamines, methamphetamine are concerned, making those things illegal just didn't work. In fact, arguably, it just made organized crime more successful and gave people more um, dirty money and uh, more, uh, more violence was visited on people with serious problems. So these things are becoming you know, uh, more understood as medical issues and social issues than, um, than just trying to, you know, put our fingers in our ears and pretend that they don't exist. But as far as psychedelics are concerned, I guess it would be a question for people to, to look at their own uh, setting and find out what's permitted, what's not. And also to recognize that just because something is against the law doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. You know, I think, um, I think it was a, a noted American president who said something to that effect about people having a, 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 a that they actively should break the law if the law is wrong. So whilst I wouldn't necessarily want to be encouraging people to do so, I would say to people that what they have to do is to consider their situation and consider what it is that they want to achieve and whether or not they can do that in what they feel is a good way. So you have to kind of look around. You have to be aware of um, the, the context in the same way that you have to be aware of the setting for the psychedelic adventure. I know there's an, a lot of different answers for this question, but I want you to talk about what could be considered a bad trip. How can dosage prevent that? And um, how can research prevent that? I know that varies to different substances, but, but is there an answer for that? Yeah. I mean, I, I, Cam, it's a bit like any of these experiences, you know, are, are they good or bad? I mean, that, that's a binary choice and life is more complicated than that, isn't it, really? I mean, you know, here you are with, or here, here one is, perhaps you, with an alien encounter experience, which at the time you might think, oh my God, this is completely terrifying. And then five years down the line, you might think, well, actually, that showed me a whole bunch of important stuff. So whether or not we consider something good or bad is, is, is highly variable over, over time. Um, generally speaking, I would say that by good management of set setting and substance, you can allow for uh, even challenging experiences to in, unfold in a good way. All right. So I'll give you an example from um, the, the, the book that I wrote about this getting higher. And it was actually an example that I gave to my eldest son. He said, well, what's the big deal about LSD? I don't understand. You know, what, why is it illegal? Um, and I said, well... You know, there's, there, are, there are various issues associated with it. Um, one of them is that uh, you can take LSD with a bunch of friends in a really good environment when you're in a really good space psychologically and you can say, hey, look at all the little faces in the trees. And you can take exactly the same substance under less good circumstances with people who are not good people and you can say in a terrified voice, oh, look, but all the little faces in the trees. And the difference between the two things is not the substance, primarily. It's primarily to do with how you feel in yourself and how that environment is. So by managing those things, 
you can create a situation where you are less likely to have a bad time. Now, any the, the power of the psychedelic experience is that because it makes these new connections in the brain, sometimes those connections can be problematic or difficult or challenging or whatever language we want to use because it brings up stuff, you know, personal relationships. I mean, it brings up things like, I don't know, um, difficult the end of ending of a difficult relationship right that's part of if, you, if that's part of your story then it's quite possible that the psychedelic will bring that up because it, it's like churning it's like kind of it, it's rather like um what's the what's the analogy like stirring the the, the cauldron of the unconscious mind stuff's going to come up that's going to be tricky but if you are in a good place and you're in a reasonably positive mind state and if you also when I say a good place that maybe includes someone to help support you with what's going on you can have that difficult stuff and it can come up and you can look at it and go oh that's difficult stuff yeah I can see the problem here but because you're seeing it from a different point of view as long as you can find ways of kind of letting that go and then moving on to whatever the next process is then that's fine and usually the ways of letting that stuff go are actually relatively straightforward you know they are if you're in a difficult um, space and uh, all this content is coming up in the mind that is um, unpleasant, because the psychedelic mind is so easily influenced, all you probably need to do is change what music you've got playing or open the window or wrap yourself in a blanket or speak a few words or um, have your friend who's supporting you offer you some water with a smile. Yeah, just that will do. So it, it, this thing about like good trips, bad trips, firstly, it depends on where you stand as to whether or not an experience is good or bad. And secondly, if you are going to have challenging experiences, the psychedelic state will almost certainly involve those, even if you're very familiar with it. The experience of as your mind starts to go into this altered state, that's unnerving. That's weird. Yeah? And the adrenaline happens in your body and your body goes, whoa, what's going on? But getting through that state and getting uh, to the op an opportunity to engage with the difficult things that we, pretty much all of us have in our lives. You know, we're human beings, we experience suffering. To engage with those things in a way that is whole or good or, again, you know, whatever language you kind of favor with this sort of stuff, it's usually about making sure that you're in a good environment and that you've entered that experience in a good and positive frame of mind. Yeah? Um, stuff's always going to go wrong. You know, there are always going to be problems or whatever. But... Um, Again, I would suggest that if people are new to the um, to this territory, just like anything else, you know, you do you go gently. Yeah, when you first meet someone, you shake them from, you shake them by the hand and and speak politely to them. It's only after a, you know a, a knowing them from a while that you'll kind of embrace them and give them a big hug and a kiss. So same with psychedelics. You know, when you take a psychedelic for the first time, take a you know if if, if it feels like the right thing to do and with appropriate advice, take a lower dose. Yeah, if you take uh, a lower dose of psilocybin, um, so synthetic psilocybin, ten milligrams, or um, in terms of some of the mushrooms that I know, I don't know, uh, cubensis mushrooms, which which grow, for example, in the United States, something like one or two grams, and you'll experience part of that, and you'll get to know it. Yeah, because part of the whole shamanic thing with this stuff is that. Um, these substances are rather, they can be thought of very, very easily as spirits, as entities, as, um, as beings. And whether or not, however we believe that may or may not exist, 
approaching them like you would respectfully, like a, a new friend, you know, is, is, is often a good strategy. So you can take a lower dose in a good, safe, supportive environment, see how it goes. You can always add, you know, you can always take a, a subsequent experience and explore the territory kind of further. So I would count, I would suggest with people that don't worry about stopping having a bad trip. It's not about that. It's more to do with cultivating a good supportive environment internally and externally so that when challenging content arises, because it will, because that's part of what you're aiming for, because it's part, that's how healing and insight happens. When challenging content arises, you're in, you're in a good place to address that. That's how, that's what really matters, at least in my view. So if you, if you adjust dosages, do your research and, um, kind of do a buddy system where you have a support group behind you, is there still ever a danger of entering some sort of consciousness where you could experience dangers that, that are beyond our world that, that aren't even expected? Um, I, I would say, I would say that, um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, when we talk about um, something like, I don't know, uh, ayahuasca, for example, is probably the, 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 the kind of go-to uh, instance of this, which um, in many settings in which people take it has a, a strong kind of spirit model. Yeah, so a strong idea that the ayahuasca is a spirit, you know, it's grandmother ayahuasca and it's a teacher and so on, and you'll encounter entities and, and so on. Um, most of the time, I would say, uh, that those entities, whether or not we think there's them as psychological uh, constructs or um, that they are kind of, that they exist in like some sort of interpersonal realm or they exist in some sort of other reality, kind of doesn't really matter. Yeah. So can you can you end up in a situation where uh, you encounter some you know terrible terrible um, thing that might do you damage? Well. Potentially, yes, I suppose you would have to say that, but that's much more likely to, uh, but, but anything you encounter is held by the environment in which you, you're in. So I'll give you an example. So I had the, I think on the uh, second, second time I took ayahuasca, um, I, I had an experience where I met um, in the vision. So here I am, I'm in the vision, I've taken, taken a dose of ayahuasca, come to doses. And I had this experience of um, seeing this uh, terrifying, uh, uh, oh, sorry, this, this, think of, if I give you the example of the second time I took ayahuasca. So uh, in the inner world, in my vision, I was in a jungle. I was in this sort of beautiful South American jungle. And there was this fantastic, beautiful woman, um, black woman with uh, feathers in her hair, the most gorgeous and fabulous goddess. And she came over to me, and then she started to defecate on me. She started to basically shit out all of the bad things, all of the times I've ever been mean, all of the times I've ever not stood up for people, including myself, all of the, all of the shame that I had in my life at that stage. You know? And just being a human, that's kind of stuff that we carry with us. I do. I, I imagine other people do. Now, that was a really traumatic experience, but what then happened in the vision was that I was, um, you know, I'm, I was there in a ceremonial space with other people, and I was able to go through that experience to the point where what she then did was she scooped out, like my stomach, it was the only way to describe it, my my abdomen, and lit a fire in it, and then that burned away all this stuff. So it didn't stop 
the fact that I might have been mean to my sisters when I was a kid and I kind of regretted that, but it meant that I'd gone through this kind of transformative experience. Now, had I not have been in a good environment and had I not been working with some other ayahuasca practitioners, somebody might have intervened and gone, oh no, you're having a terrible time. You're having a horrible vision of something. Why don't you kind of open your eyes and do something else and whatever? And actually what I needed to do was to sit there and get to the next stage where she did this uh, purification ritual, if you like, with me. Yeah. So um, I would imagine that had someone pulled me out of that experience at the moment when uh, the shit got real, as it were, and we, I found myself literally covered in my own kind of shame and my own sadness and the things that I'd done wrong. I might have found myself at the other end of the experience going, oh, actually, I've come out of this feeling really bad and, and, and unresolved and there's no catharsis and so on. So because these are powerful experiences, it's important to have them in a good, a good setting. Yeah. And the way that is for a particular individual can be hugely variable. For some people, uh, ritual setting is exactly what they want. For other people, they want a more contemporary therapeutic setting. And that's fine. You know, there's a lot of different ways of, 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 of doing this and going through that process. Does that make sense? Does, it does. Does that yeah. answer the question? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so, absolutely. So really it's about like, yeah, not intervening too soon, letting the process happen, right. but doing it in a good and supportive way. Sorry. I think it's absolutely true that uh, antidepressants are a substance that alter consciousness. Are there any psychedelics out there that can be used during our normal day-to-day routine maybe as an alternative, and I'm not asking you to make medical or making a, med- a medical sure. opinion, but you know, there, there, there's, there's always alternatives, I think. Okay. So there's, there's two things that really come to mind about with that question. One of them, I suppose, is the, uh, the current vote exists for things like microdosing psychedelics. So I'm sure that lots of listeners will have heard about, you know, people in Silicon Valley microdosing, that is to say taking, um, basically sub-perceptual um, amounts of, say, LSD, because the idea, the, the theory runs that this connection of different bits of the brain might be able to help things like creativity, it might allow things like uh, us to be less susceptible to depression and so on, and that, that those effects might happen even when we take doses that are so low that we kind of don't notice that we've taken anything. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of debate at the moment within... Um, the, the, the psychedelic and scientific community as to how effective these things are. They, they definitely work for some people, but whether or not that's primarily a placebo effect or whether or not it's, it's um, pharmacological is, is, is kind of open to debate. But one possibility for people is to look at this idea of microdosing. So for, for a number of people, they find that microdosing psychedelics, taking low uh, sub-perceptual levels of these substances, and there are various models, you know, taking a, t- a tiny amount of, say, psilocybin every three or four days, something like this, for a period of time, tracking how that works, seeing if it's effective. Uh, but that, that, that's a model. That's one way of doing it. The other way of thinking about it is about how certainly the more full-blown psychedelic experience, so the kind of thing that I was being a research participant uh, on in January of, of, um, of this year, now... The idea of that is it's a treatment for treatment-resistant depression. So here are people who in the next few years will be going through that uh, program, that they're doing the research now with people with a diagnosis of depression. Those people will be taking all sorts of 
serotonin reuptake inhibitors and various types of antidepressant medications, um, which most of them basically don't work terribly well for most people most of the time. So uh, they are, um, a lot of them are kind of 20, 30 years old and they have, they're very, it's very debatable about how effectively the, these things work. But the idea is that what you would do instead is you would take people off that medication um, for a couple of weeks and then you would use a, a, a higher dose psilocybin experience but you would wrap that around with a whole bunch of talk-based therapy. So it's not just a question of like bunging a bunch of psilocybin or MDMA into someone's brain and then that fixes it. What you have to do is you have to um, really think about the set and setting again. So to give an example, I've got a friend, uh, Ben Sesto, who's one of the leading people certainly in Britain doing work with uh, MDMA to address alcoholism. And... He gives people MDMA as part of this whole therapeutic process, which includes a number of sessions, which are kind of talking about the issues, talking about how people feel, you know, how did their alcoholism arise, you know, what's their backstory, blah, blah, blah. Then doing these psychedelic sessions where the person, and this is the, one of the important bits, the person does their own healing. Like Ben sits there and supports them and helps them and offers them water if they want it. But basically the psychedelic uh, therapist, like the shaman, doesn't actually do very much while the substance is happening for that individual. But then afterwards, they talk to them and they help them integrate that experience into their daily life. So the, the question, are there other substances you can use to address things like depression? Yes, there are two ways you can do it with psychedelics. Number one is the model of um, microdosing. So the idea that you take a low level of psychedelic and that perhaps that has some beneficial effect. Model two, which we know definitely works, is that you enter a therapeutic program which involves a number of sessions of talking about whatever the issue is, then going into the psychedelic state where you're taken out of the, the rut, out of the default mode network, out of that inability to see beyond your own intrusive thoughts or your own depression or whatever it is. You get a chance to see everything from a new perspective and then the opportunity to kind of integrate that into your life with other talk-based processes, which mean that, Basically, you don't need the meds anymore. Yeah, that's the way it works. If you look at, um, so the FDA in the United States has just approved MDMA as a breakthrough therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder. The statistics on it, if you look at, um, there's an organization called MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Their work covered on stage things like Fox News, working with um, uh, American veterans. Their work shows really clearly that you can enter a program with treatment-resistant PTSD. Yeah, so you've tried everything else. So the PTSD you've got is so bad that, that basically nothing works. And that four years after that process of going through the MDMA psychotherapy, 67% of participants do not meet the criteria for diagnosis with PTSD. So not only do they have less of it, they don't have it at all, 67%. And then... Another, I think it's like something like 20%, have significantly improved uh, um, response to their post-traumatic stress disorder. It's no longer considered to be cr uh, a, a critical high level. And maybe it can be addressed with either follow-up sessions or it can be addressed with other types of um, therapy. So really in terms of like, you know, can we find other ways of dealing with depression? Yes, microdosing is an option. The other option is proper psychedelic therapy, which means that you can just come off this stuff and you don't need it anymore. 
and the FDA recognised that. Um, and certainly, there's a, a parallel process happening in a lot of places in Europe. You know, psychedelics are powerful, and they were made illegal um, uh, in terms of most people's ability to use them because they are powerful, because they are that significant, and they are um, capable of changing uh, the way that we are as individuals and, and arguably the way that we are as a society. So the fact that they're kind of returning into a context where, like if you look at the World Health Organization, they say that depression is the number one leading cause of uh, misery on our planet. Yeah, so it's no longer heart disease, cancer, it's not even malnutrition, it's depression. We as a species are depressed. And it's interesting to note that Euro-American, white, predominantly white culture, we haven't had access to the psychedelic state for a long time. It's not been part of our culture. Yeah, we just haven't had it. It's, you know, we've, we have a culture that's based on alcohol, tobacco, cocaine, opium, tea, coffee, all stimulants and depressants, no psychedelics. And we are also the culture that's led the world in creating an epidemic of depression. And so perhaps these medicines and their return might be really, really useful, particularly at a time of great ecological crisis, because the fact that these experiences allow us to feel connection with, the, with aspects of ourselves, so the trauma that we experience with each other and with the biosphere, you know, it might, as they say, not be a moment too soon, given the way that uh, our society is un unfolding. I think it's interesting that the other, the, the other side of the coin, um, yeah, you have depression and then you have inflammation and there's a lot of things like cannabis who that, uh, have yeah. been researched that can solve both of those things at the same time simultaneously. And, and interestingly, there is, um, it's only really starting to happen, uh, now because primarily with psychedelics, the overriding thing is that you take them and you go, wow, this has changed the way my mind works and the way my senses work in a big way. And so we're mostly interested in that. But it's also the case that there's now research looking at, so physiologically, what do these things do? The interesting thing about LSD, psilocybin and all the rest of them is they don't actually do very much. They, they work on a particular, uh, a primary receptor in the brain. Um, and some secondary receptors, but they don't seem to do much else, except it turns out that a number of those processes have anti-inflammatory effects. So to really kind of, kind of simplify the thing down, there's, uh, you've probably heard of, of serotonin. So serotonin is the, um, uh, it, it's the uh, neurotransmitter associated with uh, resting, digesting, calming, relaxation, satisfaction, all those things. This is to simpl massively simplify the storyline. But broadly speaking, it's true that psychedelics work on this system. So MDMA, for instance, which is the most obvious one, it's called ecstasy. Yes, it can be ecstatic, but it's also deeply calming. It reduces the amount of fear that we have, which is why people can talk about their problematic or, or their traumatic experiences while they're on it. And that sense of calming and relaxing and the reduction of fear, unsurprisingly, just like with cannabis, what that does is it reduces inflammation. And there are now increasingly bits of research looking at psychedelics and saying, do you know what? It's really interesting that they actually, they have these anti-inflammatory properties as a group of, of substances. 
and they all they they there are a number of different mechanisms by with by which they work, but um, but yeah, the psychedelic state, in a way, the subjective psychedelic state, the things we experience in our minds, down at a neurological level, what you've got is you've got connection, you've got opening up, you've got uh, relaxation, you've got um, this uh, de-armoring of the body. So you rather than us holding ourselves tight, which is what we mostly spend a lot of our time doing, you know, there you are in your business suit going into the meeting, you know, what's the, what's the mindset in that? What's the attitude that you're having to express in those sorts of moments? But that kind of relaxation, opening, calming, connecting psychological state is mirrored physiologically in what's happening with the body. Yeah. So you're totally right. So the, uh, that ability to reduce inflammation, um, and reducing depression. I mean, arguably, they are two sides, two, they're two uh, symptoms of the same problem, yeah, which is to do with this sense of um, tight, knotted, uh, paranoid about the rest of what's going on in the world, uh, fearful uh, response, which unfortunately is a set of responses, but as industrialized Euro-American folks, you know, that's a lot of how uh, um, our political um, leaders, if, even if they don't consciously like us to be in that state, it's much easier to manipulate a bunch of humans when they're in that state. When they're in a kind of more um, open-minded, critical, um, but also wide-ranging and calm and centered state of mind, arguably, they are, uh, they are one might say, more problematic, depending if you have a kind of totalitarian approach to the way your politics unfolds. But certainly at a personal level, yes, they're anti-inflammatory, they're antidepressants. They are very powerful medicines. Julian, where do we get it? Is there a safe way to procure psychedelics? Again, you have to look at what your setting is. You have to look at what your situation is. You have to look at like, okay, so I, am I in a situation where I can get along to a Native American church ceremony? Am I in a situation where I can find reliable good people, where I can... Uh, learn how to identify psychedelic mushrooms and I can go out and I can either grow them myself or I can forage for them successfully. Um, can I travel to a place where I know I can go on a legitimate retreat? Um, again, you've got to be really, really thoughtful about this stuff and there's no, there's no simple answer. Uh, it does depend very much on, on, uh, on, the, on the context. And it's problematic because um, there are you know, some of these substances are legislated against in the strongest of possible terms, despite the fact that, you know, the, the, the number of people killed by any of these things is vanishingly small compared to over-the-counter medications and prescriptions and certainly alcohol and tobacco. So um, I think it, it's, it's a question of, like, finding, finding the way that's going to work for you in the context that, 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 um, that you're in. And a lot of that is about kind of research, making connections with other members of, of the psychedelic community, not just as drug dealers, but as people who are going to be able to advise you as to like, well, what, you know, what's the best way for, for me to be able to make, make um, these, these explorations? Um, I think that the psychedelic state is, a, is, is also available to us through non-drug mechanisms. So the easiest one to do is breath work. So Stanislav Grof, when uh, um, researcher, um, psychologist, psychotherapist when he was doing his work with LSD when he got to the point where LSD was no longer an option for him because um, he, he didn't have a license to use it 
He developed technique called breath work. And connected breath work or holotropic breath work is basically just breathing faster and deeper than normal um, without any, any uh, lock in the breath, without any stops in the breathing. And you can, you can induce a powerful visionary state of awareness just with breath. You know, I would recommend, um, there's a book called Life Force by uh, David Lee, um, published by Universe Machine, which is one of the ways of, uh, got a whole bunch of these techniques in them. But essentially, go onto YouTube, have a look at breath work, because breath work techniques um, haven't been legislated against. And that's a really easy way of exploring the psychedelic state, which is immediately available to everybody right here, right now. Is your book Getting Higher a Beginner's Guide? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's designed really for people who maybe have got the other side of the problem. So they've got some of whatever the substance is. They've got access through the dark web or through a friend or through growing or finding the psychedelic. But they don't necessarily have access to a person or uh, a community of people who can help them look at set, setting and substance. So the idea of getting higher was, it was kind of a book which I, I sort of wish that I'd had like, 20, 30 years ago, something like this myself. It's, it's hopefully something that will be useful for psychonauts, people who are already familiar with this territory, but also people who are kind of coming into it new um, and maybe kind of confused by the, the panoply of different words and names and ideas and stuff that's around. So I, I hope it is quite a, an accessible uh, guide for people. It's certainly written in language which um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm told I've been successful in that in terms of trying to make it simple and, and easy for people to, to understand and uh, to then use that to inform their own practice, however that's going to be. What's coming up next for you and where can we find you online? Okay, so uh, next, come, next thing I'm going to be doing is teaching a workshop uh, in London on psychedelic magic. That's next weekend. Um, and that's, again, using non-drug orientated techniques, so things like uh, drumming and sound and breathwork and so on. So I teach fairly frequently. I do, I do, uh, I, I do teaching and mentoring online. Easiest place to find me is uh, my blog, which is uh, theblogofbaphomet.com. Uh, and if you have a little look, there's a, a section over there on uh, at the top of the blog called Deep Magic, and you can check out all the various events and things that myself and my partner uh, Nikki Weird uh, are, are involved in doing. So um, yeah, that's probably the best place to to, to look up what uh, what we're up to. Julian Vane has been my guest tonight, and his book is Getting Higher, a manual for exploring the use of psychedelic substances in the context of spirituality, self-transformation, and magic. Julian, I'd like you to give our listeners the final word tonight. Cameron, I'd just like to say thank you very much for inviting me onto the show, um, and I hope very much that our uh, listeners to the show find some of this stuff interesting, maybe find ways to uh, understand the journey that perhaps their friends are on, or to find their own uh, journey with these ultra states of awareness, however they access them. And I would encourage them to stay high and stay free. Getting Higher, written by Julian Vane. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. 
My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. Thank you.